Maybe the most surprising thing for me has been that you have to work to, to make creative things. Like, you have to like put in the time. You have to like sit at your computer and look at your like Google Doc of like this like sh short story that you started two months ago and like have given up on like three times. And like, you gotta like look at it and like, and like try to eke something out. And, and and do that regularly um, and then sometimes like you do it enough and then like the door opens and all the words come out and it's like perfect and you're like oh my god like this is great um, but if you go into it thinking that every day is going to be like that and if you go into it thinking that every time you sit down it's going to be like that it's, it's not and you're going to be disappointed that was Larissa Pham and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette episode 135 Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, that's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that. If you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. 
That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Larissa Pham. Larissa is an artist and writer in Brooklyn, New York. Her essays and criticism have appeared in the Paris Review Daily, Guernica, The Nation, Village Voice, and elsewhere. She's the author of Fantasian, an erotic thriller novella. And in this episode, Larissa talks about her career evolution and about what it's like for her to be a working artist. She shares what a typical week looks like for her, how she differentiates between passion projects and paid projects, the advice she'd go back and give herself at the start of this uncertain and unconventional career path, what it took for her to quit her day job, and more. We also dig into a discussion about memoir and the art and craft of writing well about your own life. She shares tips and advice, as well as personal experiences and mistakes made in her own writing. And it was really refreshing for me to hear a writer reflect on their work like this, because it's something that I personally am really interested in. We also talk about sex, desire, and intimacy, which are reoccurring themes in Larissa's writing and are one of the aspects of her work that I connect with the most. I really enjoyed talking with and getting to know Larissa, and I hope that you do too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. 
All right. We are good to go. Larissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with lately. Um, okay. Uh, the Rachel Cusk trilogy of novels, um, starting with Outline and then going to Transit and Kudos. Um, they're like the only thing keeping my life together right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's like a really amazing um, sort of like they're not really like that connected. It's just like thematically and like the narrator is the same, but you're not expected to like follow through um, the three books. But they're just so amazingly written that like it's like it's like eating dark chocolate or something. You just want to make it last. That is such a good recommendation. I have not heard of these books. Can you give me just like a quick for the first one, like what it's about or why someone would love it? Yeah. So I think what's most enchanting about them is their format. Um, They're basically told through um, a series of conversations. So you're like following around this protagonist who is a writer named Faye and you really don't know that much about her. Um, Like, you know, she has a family and, you know, she's a writer, like a novelist. And as she like moves about her life, she just like meets people who like open their hearts to her. And they have like these really like penetrating, incisive conversations about like human nature. And it's just it's incredible. Like, it's really hard to describe because it's like they're like pretty philosophical, but like kind of not in like a lofty way, more in like a crude base human way. I mean, that sounds like the only book I ever want to read. I'm so glad that you yeah. brought this. That's funny. I, <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. Anytime books come up on the show or asking for book recommendations, I like equal parts hate it and love it. So I'm like, oh my God, my to, my to read list is already so long. And then, oh, got to add oh, this one, got to bump it up. Um, but that sounds yeah. incredible. So, okay, I will definitely add that to my list. Um, I would love for you to drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. Honestly, it wasn't that exciting. Um, I I tend to wake up late or I'll wake up early and then um, like not really do anything um, unless I'm working. But today, what did I do? Um, my room is really sunny. So I wake up in the mornings like cooking like a little like sausage in a skillet. Um, and usually I'll, I'll start my day by like checking all of my emails and, um, I try not to do this, but I do. Um, and then like scrolling through like social media and today I did, I did read a little bit. And then I also sort of prepped for this, um, conversation a little, um, sort of like mentally and, oh, my life is not very entertaining today. (laughs) I mean, it's, it, I don't think most people's lives are entertaining, right? Or <laughs> it just has to be honest. Um, I'm curious when you said that you mentally prepped for us having this conversation, what do you mean by that? Um, I guess whenever I'm like talking to a new person, like I like to like get in like a state of mind where I'm like, okay, like let's like organize my thoughts a little bit. Like let's like organize like, um, like something that I've been coming up against, like in my life lately has been like feeling really disorganized. Um, and so I think like, oh, well, if I'm going to like go on someone's show and like talk to them, like I want to make sure that like I kind of have like the coherent outlines of my life like a little bit in order and I'm not like totally discombobulated. Yeah. So I was just, yeah, thinking about like the topics that I have sent over and whatnot. Yeah. I think about that too when I'm a guest on other people's show or just anytime I'm in a situation where I'm essentially being asked about my life or my story or things like that. Mm -hmm. The process of sort of deciding 
how to tell your own story because there's so many different angles through which you could talk about your own experiences. And so it is like an interesting thing to even hear you talk about, okay, how do I get this organized? How do I speak about myself? Because it sounds like something that we should just be able to show up and do, but there there mm-hmm. is some preparation involved, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you can always like figure out like what angle you want to present to. Like most of the interviews that I have done um, have been around like the launch of my book, which came out two years ago. And I guess I know you're going to ask. So for the audience, um, it's a, it's an erotic thriller that is very psychological. So I was doing a lot of these interviews um, where people were like asking me about, you know, like sex and my sex life and like why I was writing the things that I was writing and like all of these sort of like questions and like all the interviews kind of like came in a certain direction. And I was like, okay, like, I guess like, this is, this is who I am right now. But it's been really nice, like, in more casual situations like this, where it's not really tied to any, any sort of work in, in my, or like work event in my life to just be like, okay, well, like, what are we going to talk about? Like, Mm -hmm. who am I going to (laughs) be? Like what angle are you going to see? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, So I, yeah, I found your work earlier this year and I feel like I've gone my, (laughs) I tend to find someone whose work that I love and then I go like so deep down the rabbit hole and I'm like, okay, like, can I read everything you've ever written? Basically. Oh my God. (laughs) I totally do that too. So you've been that person for me this year. And so I'm super excited to talk about your writing, talk about your work, but um, I guess going back a little bit, what would you say not related to writing, or I guess maybe related to writing, is the strangest or most random job that you've ever had? I have had a lot of weird jobs. Should I just should I just list them? <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like this is this is actually a great like I love this question because um, I feel like a lot of writers and like a lot of creative people in general just have like the weirdest jobs. So let's see. Starting in high school, I was I was a receptionist at my school, like just like answering the switchboard after school, and then. In college, I had a bunch of different jobs. I was a docent at the Peabody Museum of Natural History in New Haven. I was a library assistant in art and architecture library. I was a nude figure model for two years, modeling for different classes in the art department. And then, let's see, what else? Somewhere, somewhere else. I was a research assistant in a lab. And then when I went to New York, I had like an office job that I hated. So then I quit and then I started working at a sex store, which I loved. And I think that, yeah, that's the list of all my weird jobs. What surprised you most working at the sex store? How, how much it was like therapy for people. People would like come in and they would be like, I have this problem, like help me fix it. And I'd be like, okay, well, let's talk about like, what, what, what do you need from, like, what do you want from life right now? And I will try to sell you something that will maybe help you with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave a lot of relationship advice at that job and a lot of pep talks too, like a lot of like um, emotional pep talks to people. That's so interesting because on the surface, you wouldn't think that that would come necessarily with working in any retail position, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think because sex is so psychological, people really... And, and like the, it's so, it's so porous too. Like you walk into a sex store and like, everyone's like, Oh, I'm horny. Um, but like the, the psychological issues that are, that are, um, sort of always around kind of bubble to the surface. Yeah. I've been thinking about that lately about how like sex is pretty much never just about sex. 
Oh, it's never, never. Yeah, yeah. Um, so along the way of all of these different jobs, where did writing come in? I'd love to sort of hear whatever your version of the story is of how you feel like you became a working artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually, I've only recently been starting to use the term working artist to describe my work. And I'll, I guess I'll get to that in a little bit. But um, so I started writing online pretty young. I had this blog, I had a Tumblr for several years from like my junior year of high school up until my senior year of college. And it was just like an ordinary blog. Like I was just like an ordinary girl, like doing ordinary things. I mean, like, you know, like losing my virginity and writing about it and like having like all these like dramatic things that felt dramatic at the time and, and, and writing about it in kind of a poetic way. But like ordinary, you know, but I, I got a little bit of an internet following that way. And then my sort of break into like real online writing came my senior year of college. I was, I, I, I still didn't know what I was going to do when I, when I was like my junior and senior year, because I was an art student. I was a painter. I never studied creative writing, but I had been writing and thanks to um, my friend Bijan, who is a very successful writer writer now, I'm sure you've like read his stuff probably or seen like the things that he's done. So thanks to him, he sort of like encouraged me to publish. Um, and so I had like two big breaks when I was still in school. Or yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had two big breaks when I was still in school. One was um, a Sunday essay, a Gawker Sunday essay that was edited by Casey Lehman about like Asian shopping malls and like my emotional connection to them and then the other big break I had was Roxane Gay published an essay of mine in the rumpus and then Sarah Nicole Prickett was editing adult magazine when I was a senior and I worked with um, one of her editors Ryan and he was like hey like do you want to write something for this magazine and I was like sure and I wrote this essay that was probably one of the best things I've ever written. It's about like period sex and, and ghosts and like a love affair that like kind of goes up in flames before. It's so good. I've read that piece like eight times. It's so good. Oh my God. I'm so glad you know it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was like an insane thing that I wrote and it was sort of the thing that kind of launched me into maybe more of like a public eye. Like I think I had always had like a small following from my blog like really, really wonderful, um, like an audience of like mostly young women who I like really respect and love. But that was the piece that kind of like pushed me into like more of a a public eye. And that's like how I got picked up by my first agent. And um, yeah, since then, like it's just been learning how to do the thing a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned how to write criticism which has been so useful because you can't make a career off of only selling personal essays. And like I, I got into the game with personal essays, but these days I mostly publish criticism. And then when I want to, I'll write something more personal. What do you mean when you say criticism? Um, like, like book reviews and write-ups of art shows or like little, little profiles of like maybe three shows that like make sense together like my work for the nation, I would say is like, is like an, is a pretty good example of like sort of my bread and butter. And it's like a good, it's a good muscle for me to stretch, but I definitely had to learn 
how to do it. Yeah. I think that's really well said because it's easy, especially with creative things to be like, you know, oh, if it's personal essays or, you know, whatever your thing is or your niche is like that, that's the only thing I'm going to do. And to hear you speak about, well, okay, you can't make a living just from doing that. So learning how to do, you know, it in different ways, like you said, to be able to pay your bills. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where like, I come to, I've come to the phrase working artists, like, because in a sense, like, I, I'm not like a career journalist by any stretch. I don't, I don't really think of myself as a journalist. I think there was a time in my life where I was doing more reporting. I did like a really deeply reported piece for Guernica a couple years ago. I've done like reported pieces for like complex and other places, but I'm, I'm, I'm at heart. Like, I'm just like, I want to write books. I just want to, yeah, I want to write books about whatever I want. And it's been embracing sort of this description of working artists that has kind of helped me acknowledge maybe my shortcomings in certain arenas of like my career. I'm like, well, you know, like I'm not like I'm not trying to get a cover this is like just something that I'm doing in order to help me do other things. Mm-hmm. And it's helps me be a little more gentle on myself when I get like stressed out about money. Cause I'm also like, well, like everything that is like every I'm paying for everything right now with writing money. And that means a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. Money is something that I actually would love to, to talk about. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can you, I mean, in, in, I guess like whatever capacity you're comfortable with, can you break down how the financial side of your writing career works? Because I think any time, like I love the phrase working artist. I love that you use that sort of, you know, in your, in your bio and stuff when you sent that over. But, um, I think that's a question people have is like, okay, how do you actually, you know, pay for your life with doing that? And I think that that's something that, um, folks would be interested to learn more about. Yeah, totally. Um, well, so prior to this, I've only been freelancing full time for a couple months now. Um, prior to this, I was working at a nonprofit in communications, doing some like pretty heavy like trauma based work, and that had a salary. So that was from 2016 to the beginning of this year. I was working that job, and so I was I was able to save a little bit and give myself like a cushion so that I like, I don't want to like write that off. Like that was like really important <laughs> that I like could, I had like a salary coming in at like a regular interval, even though it wasn't very much. But these days, what I basically do is I am doing something pretty much every week. Like I'm doing about five pieces a month in like what that means can be different depending on the piece, like some of them like aren't as publicized. Some of them are much more high paying than others. But it, yeah, it basically breaks down to about five pieces per month and like usually like two or three events per month. And I am like fortunate to have like super low rent <laughs> and I'm still on my parents' health insurance. So those are like two things that like have, have like um, that definitely affect like how much I need to make. But I also, yeah, I basically like have a budget every month and I sort of plan around it. It is hard though, because this month I'm actually like the last two months I, I was green. Like I, I, I guess like, I don't know, like not in the rent. I, I had made enough that I was like totally comfortable. But then this month I didn't pitch as much. And the things that I did pitch were a little bit lower rates. 
Um, so I'm actually like kind of in the red this month. Um, and part of that is because I wanted to focus on the fiction that I was writing. So it's a balance, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's so much in there, uh, that you were honest about that. I appreciate, especially things like, Hey, my rent is really low. Hey, I had a salary job and was writing on the side and saved up money. I'm still on my parents' health insurance. Like these are the types of things that I think, I don't know, we're really attached to the kind of glitzy, like, look at me overnight success, you know, making six mm-hmm. figures on the internet, you know, whatever type of thing Yeah, that it's, and yet, I mean, maybe that's the reality for a select few people, but there is always some kind of putting together the, the puzzle pieces, figuring out some kind of a hustle. Like I, I've talked about this many times on the show that the reason I was able to start the podcast in the way that I did and not have ads and sponsors and have a community funded model is because my partner makes more money than I do. And so it was like, okay, these are the types of things that people don't want to talk about, but money has to come mm-hmm. from somewhere. And so hearing the truth of how it works for someone else, even if, you know, you do something really different than maybe another writer or another writer, there's just something I think that's really freeing and someone being like, okay, well, this is the way that I'm making this work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel, I feel grateful to have like pretty minimal expenses. I'm not like taking care of anyone else. Um, and if I can, if I can pay my rent and pay for my studio and pay for like my food and whatever like I also like I don't really shop anymore um that's like another thing that helps um but like if I can kind of cover like my big bases like I'm like sweet like I got the month down Mm -hmm. um yeah like I always I always try to basically make double my rent every month in freelance stuff yeah I'm also interested on the identity side I think that there's a lot that's attached to this I don't know, almost like humble brag of being a starving artist, which I've been like, you're certainly not doing. I'm not saying that I'm projecting out into like, how do you think about art and money overall? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I would never suggest that someone abandon everything to pursue an art career unless you knew deep down that that was what you really wanted and you had like a safety net of some kind I think it's like I think it's good to have a job and work on the side if you can do it part of the reason why I left my job wasn't just so that I could make work but because it was literally killing me like it was just like a really intense job that had me really really close proximity to a lot of violence and death and trauma and I like, I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm burning out. So that's, that's a big part of why I, mm-hmm. I left that job. But I think art and money, I think, I think, I mean, there's no money in art. <laughs> like, like there isn't. Maybe I'm a little pessimistic about this, but I, I'm a big advocate of the side hustle, whatever it can be. If it's something you like doing, that's even better. I think the worst thing you can do is to spend all your time making money using the same part of your brain that is your creative part and not having anything left when you go home. I think that's the worst thing you can do. Interesting. I think the best thing you can do is spend however, like make money however you want, however it works for you, however is comfortable for you, whether that's dog walking or being a barista or working like a nine to five at like, you know, some agency, like whatever it is, like as long as like the part of your brain that like is doing the creative work is, is being protected. And like, I'm very protective of, of my, of my creative space. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that I've learned. So then how do you think about passion projects versus paid projects? Like, is there a distinction there for you, especially now that you are, like you said, you know, paying all your bills through writing and doing this more full time? 
Yeah, I mean, I I've actually become like very hardline about like the rates that like if I get paid like to yeah, to be perfectly honest, like if someone's like, "Hey, I'll pay you $800 to do this." And then someone's like, "I'll pay you $200 to do this." I'm going to say yes to both, but like the $800 one is going to get an $800 job and the $200 one is going to get a $200 job cuz that's like what I have to do. And I think I do make a distinction between the work that I get paid for and the work that I'm making in the hopes that one day it will sell. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with selling your work. I don't like, I don't think that we should just like, we should be noble about the art that we make. But I do think that it is important for art to be made kind of away from market pressures. Like I'm, I'm working on some, some fiction right now and I'm trying really hard to keep that away from all of the other stuff going on in my, in my financials. Like I want to make that like really pure and I don't want to think about selling it. And I also don't want to, I want to make room for it outside of my normal writing schedule. Yeah. It's interesting to, since, I mean, since they're both writing, it's interesting to hear how you draw the lines around it and kind of where that separation exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, it helps that, um, I don't think of myself as a critic or a journal. Like I know that I am those things. I know that I am a critic and I, I also enjoy that, but I think it, it helps that, that, that for me, like the thing that I really want to cultivate is not something that I can make a lot of money with right away. Like no one gets rich writing short stories sure. unless you're Christian opinion, you know, <laughs> like, like that's, that's not really, um, so it kind of, yeah, like kind of made the decision for me mm-hmm. in a way. I'd love to hear any myths or maybe misconceptions of being a working artist that you think people have. Like what's something that you think it would surprise people to learn or something even that surprised you in making this transition over the last few months? I think maybe the most surprising thing for me has been that you have to work to to make creative things. Like you have to like put in the time. You have to like sit at your computer and look at your like Google Doc of like this like sh- short story that you started two months ago and like have given up on like three times and like you gotta like look at it and like and like try to eke something out and 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 do that regularly. Um, and then sometimes like you do it enough and then like the door opens and all the words come out and it's like perfect and you're like, oh my god, like this is great. Um, but if you go into it thinking that every day is going to be like that, and if you go into it thinking that every time you sit down, it's going to be like that, it's, it's not, and you're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think when I, 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 I thought when I, when I first quit my job at the end of January this year, I was like, Oh, I'm going to have all this time. Like I'm going to do so many things. Like I'm going to be like just writing all the time. And like, uh, I've been writing, but I've also like been having like an existential crisis. <laughs> so I guess. I guess that's, that's what I've learned. Mm-hmm, I don't yeah. know if it's like a myth so much as it's just like a uncomfortable truth. Yeah, no, I mean, and it, it totally makes sense. I think that there is a lot of this kind of like 
airy fairy projection onto anything that's creative. Like how great would it be Mm -hmm. to just write all the time? And you're like at your villa in Tuscany and you have the typewriter and everything's just like smooth and easy, right? It's like that reminder that work is Mm -hmm. work kind of regardless. I don't know. I think Mm -hmm. that makes me want to ask a more, I guess, like voyeuristic question. Can you share lately what a typical week looks like for you? Like when do you write? How do you structure your days, especially with what you were talking about, about, you know, space for the fiction work versus like the paid work um like how many hours mm-hmm. a day do you spend writing I'm just like super curious about like I guess like how you do life yeah totally um well the funny thing about writing full-time is that like you really can only write for maybe four hours a day like you can't sit down and then like eight hours get up and be like well my job is done like it, it doesn't work that way um I I would say um, it kind of depends on like what my assignments are like, like lately, I, like I mentioned, my, my calendar hasn't been quite so stacked with deadlines, which is kind of not great for me. I'm feeling a little unmoored. Um, but in a typical week, it'll be, um, I'll usually have one or two assignments that I have to get taken care of. And so I'll front load those depending on, depending on the deadline. Like if it's due on, Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I'll do it right away in the beginning of the week. And I'll usually get up, do my like whole little morning routine um, where I lie in bed and go through everyone's Instagram stories. <laughs> and then I'll make a cup of tea. I drink this like the fucking Trader Joe's green tea that comes in like the really big box. So like I don't have to buy it. <laughs> um, and I'll set up usually in my living room, sometimes in my room. Um, I don't really have like an office. I would like to get, like, I would like to set up some kind of like desk situation in my room at some point. Um, But yeah, I get set up and then I just get going. I usually start by like doing emails and admin and everything that I don't have the energy for at the end of the day. So like invoicing, um, pitching, following up, all all of that stuff gets done like in the first hour and then I'll sit, settle down and um, and sort of like go into whatever, like if it's a book review or if it's like if it's like a show that I have to like write up, like I'll I'll just get going into that. Um, so that would be like I and I, I do that probably like three days a week is like some form of like getting up, making tea, and writing. Um, the other days, the other four days, um, one or two are usually spent like doing. <laughs> Like I'm making air quotes, but like field work. So like whether that's like reading for an assignment or going to an event for an assignment or seeing an art show for something like that's like kind of like out in the world days. And that's like those are days where like I have like coffee with people or like meetings if I like need to take a meeting or like calls like those are like the days where I do that. So it's like two more days. And then with the last two days, I usually like and of course, like all of this, like I also have like free time like I have. I sort of have weekends every day is a weekend, but not a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the, those other two days, I usually try to make one or one or both of them. Um, I try to get to my art studio for at least a couple of hours um, because I have a painting practice as well. And it's like, I'm, it's not something that I'm monetizing, but it's, it's, it's like, um, it's just like mental hygiene. It's like going to the gym. I just have to do it. So I try to get to the studio twice a week. I usually, yeah, I usually make it usually towards the end of the week. 
Is there yeah. anything else in addition to your painting practice? Because you mentioned the mental hygiene. Like, are there other things you're like, I just need to do these things because they make me like a better version of myself and able then able to do my best work? Um, painting and I think reading. I've noticed that when I don't read, like my whole brain just goes flat and like stale, um, which is why Rachel Cusk has been like just like such an injection of like, it's like a vitamin B injection or something. Like I just feel great reading her. Um, and then like, of course I like make time with, to spend with like friends, um, and like talk to them about like, you know, what's going on in our lives. I live really close to the park. So I get outside and I guess like one other therapeutic thing for me that I actually have been neglecting this conversation is making me realize I haven't been doing a great job this past week is, uh, I've been learning how to code. So, Oh, interesting. I would, yeah, it's totally different from everything else that you just mentioned that you spend time on. Yeah. It's like, it's like the one thing in my life that I can't monetize. Um, and it's like a completely different skill set than the one that I normally use. So it's, it's really, and it's also very like instantly gratifying because all you have to do to make a website is you just like, or like a website, you can sort of look at it in your own browser, not like on, not live, but is you just have to make a document and just end it with .html. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you made something and it's visual. Um, and I, I see that as part of my art practice too, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- that's my, that's my mental hygiene. I love I that. Should, I should also just go to the gym, but I don't. <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? The things are like, well, I should do this, but I don't. Is there anything else like that for you that you're like, oh, everyone seems to do, you know, X thing, but I just can't be bothered. Yeah, I think it is like just, I think it's going to the gym. I'm just like, I can't, I can't be bothered. Like there are so many things like I will, I will go outside. I will like do stuff. Like I walk a lot, but like the idea of like putting aside like an hour to go sweat in a room near other people sweating, is just so, so different to like what I would expect for myself. I feel like for me, that's the way that I feel about meditation. Like, and I have tried and I've built up like streaks of, you know, 50, 70 day. And I just, I'm like, eh. every time I stop doing it, I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't really want to do that anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I know that's like blasphemous to other people who are like, no, it's the thing that like, that's their mental hygiene. But I always think it's interesting to talk about this kind of stuff because the thing that is, you know, the thing for some people, for someone else, it's just like, I just can't be bothered. It doesn't really do it for me. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, it's funny because like painting um, basically takes care of like all of those things for me because it's like it's physical, like sometimes surprisingly physical. I'm like hauling things around and like sanding things and, you know, preparing surfaces. It's really meditative. It's like something that I do alone. It's like repetitive. Like it's it, it's usually done in complete silence. Like it's kind of like it, it, it sells a lot of things for me. But I'm also not going to be like, everyone should take up oil painting. Right, exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to work for everyone. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like you're navigating an uncertain and maybe even unconventional career path. I'd love to hear about your personal experiences with potentially like the career anxiety that goes along with that. What's that been like? It's been, it's been like, hard at times it it really kind of depends and I think a lot of freelancers will kind of agree with this but I think it's almost like how many wins have I had lately like how many like big pieces have I published lately or like how many like like have I published lately 
like, which I haven't actually, um, or like, you know, like, did I get like, do I have good work lined up? Like, I feel like it's very much like a moment to moment kind of thing. And that can really affect how I feel about my career, which is, you know, good and bad. Like it's, it's definitely a motivator to work harder if I need to. This whole conversation also can definitely be an argument for socialism. (laughs) I'm just throwing that out there. Um, but I mean, I think to some degree, it's like, am I doing the work that I'm proud of? If I'm not, I need to take a step back and think about how I got here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think sometimes there's like pressure to publish more or to publish certain kinds of things, or you realize that like certain things you do get more attention and then you're like, Oh, should I like pivot to this thing? Um, and those are all kind of like, you know, like boogeymen. Um, but like, I, I, I check in with myself a lot about like, well, like what, what do I want to be doing? Like, what is the thing that I want? Um, and yeah, I guess I've, I've been putting maybe a little bit too much pressure on myself lately to like come up with like a second book. Um, I'm definitely kind of in like a sophomore slump right now. <laughs> um, and that's, that's been interesting. I've sort of been like observing it, like the weather, mm-hmm. just like, okay, like this is, this is how it feels and it doesn't feel great, but like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I'm interested in what you said before about making sure that you're doing work that you're proud of. Can you say more about that? Like when, when you are doing work that you're proud of, like, what does that mean to you? What does that look like? Is it just something you feel where you're like, okay, I feel proud of this. And it's more abstract. Like, is there anything tangible that you can put around what it looks like when you're doing work that you're proud of? Sure. Um, I think, I think we all do think like, I, 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 I shouldn't make the assumption that everyone's a freelance writer, but I think there's, there's like jobs that you do and you do them and you're like, I did this job. I did it fine. It's like competent and I, and I completed it and I will get paid. That, that is like not a small amount of the work that I do, but then sometimes I do something where I, I like, and, and in an ideal world, everything I do would be like this, but of course it's not. But sometimes I write a review and I'm like, this is great. Like, this is insightful. I feel like I learned something. I feel like this piece of writing is going to help other people learn something. It's evergreen. I'm going to be able to refer to it. I'm really proud of it. I think it's beautiful. Like, even if it's not like my, like, quote unquote, like art practice, like even if it's not like, you know, like a short story or something that feels more self-consciously creative, I feel really good when I like, when I do that, when I pull it off and I, and I write like a really beautiful review or I write like, like something, like I do an interview that I'm proud of, um, or if I like report on something that matters to me, but that's, yeah, like I have to balance that with, um, the other stuff that I also do just cause like I, I need to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I guess it's like cooking meals almost. Like sometimes you're like, I'm going to make this beautiful meal. It's going to be great. And it's great. And then sometimes you're like, I just need to make some pasta Yeah, and like dump like cold pasta sauce on it and stir it around. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's something freeing in that also, because it's really easy to put pressure on yourself that everything has to be the gourmet meal essentially. And that doesn't mean phone it in. It doesn't mean don't try hard. Like you said, in an ideal world, everything that you created would be something that you feel, you know, immensely proud of and great about. But I do think that that's not realistic most of the time that like there we do sometimes just need to eat the cold pasta, right? 
Mm-hmm. And like, it's, I think it, you have to be realistic about it too. Like, I, I, I know some people who are like, oh, I never want my byline on something that like, isn't like 100% like what I want to do. And I'm like, that's great. But like, not all of us can really manage that. Um, and like, you know, I have my ways. Like, I don't, you know, I don't put stuff that I'm not proud of on like my Instagram story, <laughs> you know, but like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, like, I feel like I'm like, it's for a lot, like, if an editor listens to me saying this, like, are they going to be like, oh, that was me? Um, but yeah, I think like, you have to be absolutely like realistic about just like the things that we, we, we take on because they, we do care about them to some degree. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate doing like unethical work, you know, and there are places that I don't, I don't publish with because I don't agree with how they're funded. Um, and I think that's like a good way of of using like making sure that you're using your power for good. Yeah, I mean, and and also that there's a huge area in between the this is an unethical you know publication or use of my time, and I'm going to choose to have a hard boundary and not do that. Versus the other end of the spectrum of this is the most proud I've ever done of anything, and this, but like there's some in between there, which I think you're speaking to well. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So if you could go back to, I mean, maybe when you first started getting paid for writing or you mentioned like the first couple of uh, like bigger breaks, what's one piece of advice that you'd love to go back and give yourself when you were first starting out on this path? Oh my God. Um, I feel like I would give this advice to any young writer. And in fact, I feel like <laughs> it is something that I usually say if I'm like speaking to students, which I love doing. I wish more people would, would ask me to do that. But I think especially as like a woman and as like a person of color and um, and someone who like identifies as queer, like I feel like generally there's like you're like encouraged to like sell yourself out <laughs> along like any one of your identities or all of your identities to like to like write an essay or something. Um, like, I feel like so many people I know, like their first big break came from writing about, um, something traumatic that happened to them or worse. Like, I don't have, I don't, I don't know anyone personally who's done this, but I've seen it where it's like, you see this like young writer sort of get sort of not bullied, but like maybe like encouraged in an unfair way to, say something provocative um about like their identity or like use their identity in a way that like feels provocative like for what reason for like clicks right and I think that the landscape right now is not as predatory as it has been for young writers starting out but I do think that like I wish that I had held on to more when I was first publishing I don't regret anything but like I do wish that like I had I had held on to a little bit more of myself and figured out when was the best time to like tell some of those stories Mm -hmm. yeah like not relying on essentially like the shock value of something in order to be your launching pad yeah definitely because you will be encouraged to um is the thing Uh like it's always like what's the worst thing you've ever happened that's ever happened to you okay now write about it Mm mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe something other than that, what you just shared, can you share one mistake that you feel like you've made in your writing career? Um, I think, let's see. There's one piece that I wish that I hadn't taken. Um, it was an op-ed in the Daily Dot a couple
couple of years ago. And it was about um, someone over at their gender and sex vertical had asked me if I would write an op-ed about Caitlyn Jenner and sort of like this, the, the whole like controversy around like, like what it meant for her to come out um, versus like how that's not getting as much attention as like, or how, how, um, how like, or like pretty ordinary, like violence against trans women was it like, wasn't getting as much attention um, in the media. And they were like, well, would you like want to write like an op-ed about this? And I, and I did write one and it was sort of about like, I, I sort of like identified like the sort of, I guess like, like contradictory nature of media where it was just like, oh, like we only like really pay attention to trans women when they're like beautiful and like says like uh, adhering to says like ideals of beauty and like when they're famous and like we don't pay attention to them when like you know they're, they're they don't adhere to those like really terrible standards and so like it wasn't it wasn't like a bad op-ed like it was sensitive and like it was fairly well received and like I like I stand behind everything I said in it but I still think about how I should have just taken that assignment and like passed it on to someone else, like passed it on to a trans writer mm-hmm. and just been like, so, like she should take it, you know, like I just, and that was a, that was a place where like, and I've talked to people about it and they're like, well, you know, you were using your voice like in a good way. Like you were, you were speaking up for something that you believe in. And like, I, I have written about like, like violence against trans women because I used to work at an organization where we, um, we responded to that um, and tried and worked to prevent like homophobic and biphobic and transphobic violence along other vectors as well. So like, I do know quite a bit about this, but I think something that I continue to think about is just like, like, do I need to be in this conversation? Like, am I taking up too much space in this conversation? Um, Like, when is it useful for me to like pass this on to someone else? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's, yeah, like, that's the one thing that I kind of return to sometimes. It's like, oh, like, like, I think if someone offered me an assignment like that again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all such important questions to ask yourself, right? Like what lane am I in? When does it make sense to use my voice? When does it make right. sense to amplify someone else's voice to step out of the conversation entirely? And I don't think there's ever like one very clear cut answer. And like you said, like it's situation by situation, but I think that those are all really good questions. Yeah. Yeah. So pivoting, I guess, a little bit, um, I'd love to talk about sort of memoir and writing about yourself and what some of the things that you've learned about essentially like how to write well about your own life. Um, I don't even know what necessarily a good entry point would be for this, but I feel like you do it really well. Do you think that there's anything in particular that helped you learn to do that well? Like whether it was a mentor or advice or specific things that you've read, just, I don't know, anything that you want to speak to about that's helped you to be better about writing about yourself and your life? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I like the way that that's framed. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of it has just been like reading a lot of sort of like creative nonfiction. I don't love that phrase, but (laughs) like, yeah, like, like nonfiction, um, and memoir and, seeing how other people have historically like used the format and I can't remember where I first 
learned this. I don't know if it was even like something that I learned, but so much is something that just like kind of I picked up over a long period of time. But something that has been really useful in terms of like thinking about nonfiction writing is you just the idea that like our lives are these like really messy, chaotic things that don't really have narrative. Like it's just like things just happen. And like, it's not even like they happen one after the other. They're usually all happening at the same time. And so it's kind of our job as writers to take like almost like a strainer and like pull it through and like have everything like sort itself out and like sort everything out through like whatever it might be, whether that's like a, like the lens that you're using or if it's like a larger framework of power that you're like looking at some event through but like whatever whatever the device is like we're we're trying to make sense of something that inherently doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. so I think about that a lot and um recently actually um Leslie Jameson who I have read for years and who I really like she said in an interview I think it was with Garnica but it might have been somewhere else that she was like yeah like I don't think you use up you use up a story when you tell it once. I think you can like tell the same story like in different ways and have it say different things depending on like what you need in your life. And this is like a a very loose paraphrase, but that was kind of what I got from it. Like just like kind of like this like permission almost to just like, oh, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't waste my opportunity (laughs) when I told that story one time when I wrote about it one time, like I can still use it again. And, like, I think that speaks to how our lives are basically, like, infinitely, like, refracting. Like, we can just, like, pick whatever little bit of light we want, um, depending on when we we need it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that goes back to even what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation in terms of even mentally preparing for an interview. Like, okay, well, my life is my life, but I could come at this from so many different angles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are some of the I don't even know if mistakes is the right word but common mistakes that you think that people make when writing about their lives um something that I I think about a lot because I've read a lot of personal writing is um and something that I really try hard not to do in my in my writing and I'm sure I I'm sure I still do it but um I really don't like it when people aren't generous with the writing like I think what do you mean I think sometimes yeah, I think sometimes people write like it's their diary and they're like, oh, and A said this and B said this and C said this and D did this and then A and B were in a fight. And like, you know, like I can't I can't follow a narrative like that. Like, like I can't like I think there's like a certain sort of like closedness about a lot of um, personal writing that maybe hasn't been written with an audience in mind and I think I see that kind of as like therapy in a way where it's just like okay like clearly you're like the writer is going through something and like is processing this and like feels this way but like isn't really doing the work of 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 helping a reader understand why she needs to care Mm -hmm. um about what's happening um and you see this a lot in like essays about like people's like old lovers where they're like where they're so like focused on the intricacies of like that specific relationship that they don't think about how it might, how, how it might like put up a wall almost for a reader who's trying to, who wants to empathize, but maybe can't because there's no, there's no way in. 
and in a formal sense, I see this as like being too being too vague about like a character can really lead to that feeling because you're just like, well, like who's the second person? Like who's the you of this essay? You know, like is this even meant for someone else to read? And like like that's a formal thing. And then the other sort of like inverse of that is like being too specific where you're just like, oh my God, like this is just you talking about like, like just your own circle. Like that's fine. But like, I think if you're going to, like, if you, if you want to publish something like that and you want people to read it, like you, you do have like a little bit of a duty to make sure that it's, it's meant to be read, you know, by an outsider. Yeah. So I think like, and, and, and like the way that I'm saying this now doesn't sound very generous, but Ideally, we would all strive for generosity and and thinking about this is another framework that I like to use. But um, Herodotus, I think, once said like his like poetry is a universal and history is a particular particular. Um, and I find that really useful. Like you can use your own particular history to write about something and you absolutely should, but you should make sure that there's some poetry to it mm-hmm. so that you don't completely alienate people who are trying to read it Yeah, and who, who want to, I think in good faith, read it. When I read your work, I feel like the one thing that hits me above anything else is a feeling of like, this is what truth sounds like, which is like maybe strange feedback, but there's just like something about your particular honesty that I find to be really compelling. And that really fits into everything that you just described. I'd love to know if there are any particular questions that you ask yourself to get to the heart of the truth that you are trying to share. That is one of the greatest things anyone has ever said to me. So thank you. And that's a great question. Uh, So let me think about that. I think this is so like silly, but like if you look at like all of my, all of my documents in progress, it basically just, I have like, I, I, I write everything in Google Docs. So please Google, don't be evil and don't shut down unexpectedly because <laughs> I have no backups. Um, but uh, if you look at all of my documents in process, I have like little comments on the side and it usually just says, what am I trying to say? Like, what is, what is, what is the larger thing that I'm trying to get at? Like, what is, what is the heart of the story? And like, how do I get there? And it's interesting because I guess when I'm writing nonfiction or like something that's like more explicitly from my life, I kind of know what that is usually like right from the outset, like, because like, it'll usually be the thing that sparks writing the thing to begin with. Um, to like to give a concrete example, like um, with House on Fire, I knew what I wanted the story to be about. It was about this relationship and it was about how, how quickly things can descend upon you and how sometimes like the beginning of a, re- a relationship like foreshadows its end. And like I knew that going into it. So like I wrote it with that in mind. And with fiction, it's a little harder because I'm still, I'm still looking for that truth. I think you can tell the truth in fiction usually a little bit easier than you can in, in nonfiction. Um, but it's, it's, it's a much murkier process when I'm, when I'm looking for it there. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, I mean, it really does boil down to just like me asking myself, like, what am I trying to say? Like, what's the point I'm trying to make? Am I trying to, am I trying to say something about love? Am I trying to say something about desire? Am I trying to say something about loneliness? Like it, it, it changes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm working on my first book right now. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I just think a lot about sort of the difference between like saying what's true and saying what's true as long as it will be well received. Like, what am I trying to say for my ego versus what am I trying to say? Cause like it needs to be said. I know it's like, there's a really interesting and I have no answers at all, but sort of how to account for the unreliability of memory, this idea of like, what is truth anyway? And obviously these are big mm-hmm. questions, but that, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm like obsessed. I'm obsessed with like the idea that like language is like totally like an impermanent tool. Like it's like a blunt, it's a blunt object. Like it's like we use words to say things that are in our heads, but like the thing in your head and like, I think about this a lot in terms of like when I get into like fights with people I love where I'm like, Oh, like I feel this thing so strongly in my heart. How come you don't feel it? Like that's like, because like we we have to use language um there's a line from a theorist whose name I always forget because it's a throwaway line and like a prologue of like something that I had to read in grad school which I dropped out of um but the line is language is a dark vessel and I think about that a lot about how it it carries something that we don't we can't see Mm mm-hmm yeah. What do you think the difference is between a good memoir and a great memoir? I think I think it actually comes back to that generosity thing that I was talking about. And I feel like I should flesh this out as a thesis a little bit more and maybe I'll maybe I'll do that in a, in a review of something if I if I find a good memoir that I like and a great memoir that I like. I think you can read a memoir where it's like, oh, something extraordinary happened in this person's life and and they're going to tell you about it. And I think that's, that's nice. It's good to read. It's like a good story. I think like storytelling is really important. And I think like giving the reader like a good thing to read is kind of underrated. I think a lot of literary writers like would rather make their readers suffer. But I think like a really great memoir like also offers the reader something mm-hmm. like it's not just presenting the story in a beautiful way, but it's actually like giving the reader something to hold on to and, and, and carry in their own lives. And like, you know, maybe like turn that, turn that lens outward. So like you can, like, even if I'm reading like the story of someone who like has nothing to do with me, I, for some reason I'm thinking of Lydia Yuknovich's, um the chronology of water. I remember reading that memoir and just being like, Oh, like, I really like some of this. I really don't like some of this, but I like it's being offered to me in a way where like I can I can sort of take some of this with me. Mm-hmm. And I think of that memoir as like a, a really good example of the form. And I think like writers like Maggie Nelson obviously do a really wonderful job with memoir because they like she she in particular like ties it to things like outside of herself um, and in doing so helps us see how that might relate to our own lives. Um, And I see that as a generous act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think so what you're speaking about is like the craft of writing. I don't know. I think there's um, going back to sort of, again, like myths and misconceptions, this idea that like great writing is kind of a mystery and it's like inspiration and muse and luck and talent. And sure, maybe it Mm -hmm. is those things also, but even what you were saying before about, no, no, it's actually like work. You have to like sit at the screen, like with the Google doc open, right. Which obviously sounds like very obvious once I say it, but I'm interested in 
anything really specific that you want to share about the craft of your writing? Like, are there any rules that you follow? Any like particular advice that's been particularly, well, that was a terrible sentence. Is there any advice that's (laughs) been particularly helpful for you? Um, Just like to kind of make it more tangible, not just like, I'm going to sit down and write something great. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that I've been really conscious of in my writing Lately, this is like, this is like pretty new for me. This is like the last two years is thinking about the formal structures of a story. Um, Like how many characters are there? What are their relationships to each other? And like, how are their energies kind of interacting? Are they opposing? Are they working together? Do some of them like each other? Do some of them not like each other? Like, this is like very like, like basic stuff kind of like, I don't know, maybe it sounds like a little too simple, but it's like, it's, it's the shape of this. Like, is, are the relationships, are they like a square? Is it like a triangle? Like, is it something different? Like if it's one person, like, is it like, are they a circle? And like, it, it like do you see outside of them or is it like all internal if there's two of them like what is their relationship like do they push do they pull and I think thinking about that has helped me craft like stronger stories I think it's helpful to look at writing from like a very formal level in order to make sure it's doing exactly what you want I think I don't think it's like a bad thing to open something and just start writing and like add things as you as you wish but I think really like looking at every part of a story and being like well what is this doing like is it doing something if it's not doing something I should probably take it out you know it's like like does the dog need to be in the story no or like does the dog really make the story like can you like make everyone's relationships to the dog say something about their character um so I think just I guess this is really boiling down to um really thinking about the relationships um, between like all the subjects of the story and like what they're saying and like thinking about how to make whatever you want to say strongest and mm-hmm. highlight it and like not get it, like not let it get lost. Yeah. I, I think that there's so much in there that's particularly helpful when we're talking about this idea of writing about your own life. Cause I think it's easy to get sort of clouded by the fact that like, because it's your story, it's important to you just by the nature that like, it's your story. Right. But that doesn't, like you said before, that doesn't make it inherently important to somebody else that it's Mm -hmm. like, if you're writing about your own story, you're still a character in your story. Why does anybody care about that character? And I could see it being really helpful. I'm like taking this through the filter of for myself because the, the story that I'm writing is a personal story to be like, okay, interesting. Like how do the different relationships and the different characters interact and sort of this idea of what makes this not just a good story, you know, that you would tell at a party, but what would make a reader care about this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, it's like, does your, like, does the friend need to be in it? You know, right. or like, like maybe it needs to be more about like your relationship with your mom or like whatever, like whatever it might be. Um, but I think I, I find that useful in terms of like starting out. Um, yeah, just like looking at like the underlying structure of something and making sh- making sure I think that everything is like sort of pointing towards what you what you want to say. Mm-hmm. So the last writing specific question that I wanted to ask um, is more on the editing side. Can you share mm-hmm. what happened after you wrote the first draft of your book? Again, this is a totally selfish question because that's the phase that I'm at. Like, so you had a first draft on your desk. What came next? 
Um, well, so Fantasia was kind of funny how it came about um, because what happened was I had been working on a draft of a similar novel for about a year. It was about 70,000 words long. Most of it the same was the same. Like there was like the girl Dolores and there were these twin brothers. Um, but it was a much more like straightforward, like campus novel where like Dolores was like a much more sympathetic character at the time. And it was just like, Oh, like a girl in college. And like, there's, she just like gets in like this love triangle with like these two guys. Like that was basically the, the plot. And I finished it and I gave it to my agent at the time. And she was like, you know, like there's something here, but like, it's going to need like some more work. Like, I think you should revise it and really think about like X, Y, and Z. So I started revising it. And around this time, I had also written about the New Lovers series at Badlands Limited. And they actually reached out to me and they were like, hey, do you want to like have a meeting with us? And I was like, yeah, like I would love, I would love to sit down with you guys and like talk about like the series. And I sat down with them and they asked if I would, if I would write a, a novel for their like erotic novella series. And I was like, wait, like this would actually be like a great opportunity for me to revise this like kind of like big flabby novel that I had and like turn it into something like slim and like really precise and like really hone it down. And so I like knew I had no hope of like selling the novel like as is. So, um, and I had already begun a revision where I added another character and her. And so everything kind of just crystallized at that moment. And I like told Balance, I was like, yes, like I will have like a first chapter and like an outline to you at this point. And I will like give you like, like the sample ASAP. And I like went home and I wrote it like all in a torrent. And I kind of like figured out what what the story was going to be like it was like it was like this is like I, I don't want to say like writing is always going to be like this because it isn't but like it was like lightning struck and they were like this is great like we love we love your writing like we're really excited to work on this with you and I wrote a full draft in in six weeks and then we we edited it together over a period of like another four weeks and then it was out in the world later that year mm-hmm. it was a really really fast process like it was really it happened really fast but I think it it part of it part of why it could happen that way was because I had been working on the original iteration of it for a year before that and I had been like carrying that around for a long time so I don't like I don't think it's gonna happen that way again for me I think I got one of those but it was yeah I think I was just like I was very much in line with what Badlands wanted and and their project was like very much in line with like what I needed to sort of kickstart like the story itself. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and this extends, I think just like beyond your book and into other pieces too, but I feel like intimacy and desire are frequently reoccurring themes in your writing. And I'd love for you to talk about why you think that is. Mm, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't like, I don't really know. I do know that like, I think I'm, I think I'm drawn to talking about certain things or using certain narratives because like we were saying earlier, like sex is about like pretty much everything but sex. So whatever you want to say is going to come up 
through it kind of like it's going to it's going to emerge through this thing so it just so happens that like the stories that I want to tell kind of come from this place of like intimacy and desire and I mean I also just I also just I guess I just like talking about them um I know this isn't maybe the answer you're looking for but I don't know I guess there are like a lot of themes right in life like victory or loss or healing and growth or whatever but I guess what I've always been really interested in is like relationships between people and the way that they can change and I've also ever since I was like young had like a really enduring interest in accurately capturing like how it feels to be in certain kinds of relationships yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that your work resonates with me so much is because like, I, everything you just said, I'm like, yep, yep, I feel the same way. And so I'm curious, what do you feel like you're aiming for when you write about sex? Um, I guess it, I guess it kind of depends. Um, it depends on the situation that it like, or like the context that it's in, but I think and and this is like straight from from Fantasia. Actually, is like usually when I'm writing, writing like actually writing sex like into something, I'm trying to use it as a plot point. Like I'm I'm like in the scene, you will see how two characters relate to each other. You will see how their relationship changes, or stays the same, or is represented. This is like very formal again, but I think when I, yeah, like, when I'm writing, like, literally writing, like, you know, like, X went into Z, like, whatever, um, like, when I'm, when I'm doing that, like, I'm really interested in, in using that moment to say something larger about a story, and if it doesn't work, I'll take it out, Mm -hmm. um, like, I don't, I don't really like writing gratuitous sex, I don't think it's useful, (laughs) I think writing about sex is a little bit different, I don't think I've actually done that in a while. I, I think like I've I definitely like write about sex from like a political perspective. But yeah, I think Yeah, I think when it when it comes down to it, I'm usually just trying to use that moment to describe something else. Mm-hmm. That feels yeah, that feels most accurate. <laughs> Yeah, I want to talk um a little bit about the the piece that you wrote for Roxanne Gay's Unruly Bodies series. Mm-hmm. which was also incredible. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes, but in order for us to be able to talk about the piece a little bit, for folks who haven't read it, can you just kind of give a quick summary about what it's about? Yeah, um, that's, I mean, that's like a really funny, funny essay. And it's actually very much in line with the first essay that I wrote for Roxanne four years ago. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I guess like the best way to describe it would be like sort of a poetic chronicle of my passage through a period of like abjection and seeing myself as 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 abject and and sort of coming to see myself as abject in certain ways and then kind of like moving moving through that mm-hmm. and like understanding like how that happened because there is like a a, there's there's a part at the end where it's like and and maybe I'm in a different place and maybe I'm not but it was for Roxanne's unruly body series so the prompt was just like what does it mean to live in a body that is unruly and for me that has been like to live in like kind of um 
like a hypersexualized, like, like Southeast Asian, like woman's body. So I, it sort of centers around this like kind of like funny, maybe only to me idea of like abject permanence, um, where like abjection is like, like seeing yourself and maybe being seen as like less than, and just how that sort of informed my, yeah, like my, my youth and, and quite a bit of my like development and just, yeah, like tracing that, tracing that path. Yeah. There's a line from the, from the piece that I would love to kind of hear some more context on or background or whatever you wanted to share the part where you say, I'm aware that my body is desirable, but I'm not sure if it's lovable. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny to talk about this piece because it was definitely written from a place of like simultaneously, like no longer being in that space. Um, but then also still like carrying, carrying trauma from that space, um, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that now, like I wouldn't describe myself that way now, but at the time I did feel that way and it felt like authentic. So I wanted to, like the whole thing is written in, in, um, present tense. So that's like part of it. This is sort of like my disclaimer. Cause I, I don't like to sort of advocate for self-destructive, um, behavior yeah, totally. in daylight, you know? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, having, having an audience of like mostly, mostly teenage women really has taught me that I I need to be really deliberate about like when I say things also I don't know if that like is so much now but just like from from being on tumblr I just I just learned that anyway oh now I'm like I just got distracted I was like oh like I don't want to like essentialize my my readership anyway okay to get to the actual thing that we're talking about (laughs) yeah I think it's I think it's something that we we do run into as women is like we find ourselves to be desirable, but not lovable in the eyes or hearts of people who we would hope would think we were lovable. And that's like a, a thing that we have to carry and, and, and balance. And I think like, it's really easy to, to learn that you're desirable sometimes before you realize it, or like, you know, you're sort of made to learn it and maybe in an abrupt way or a violent way or, you know, like, um, an unexpected way. And then sometimes you learn that before you learn that you are lovable and that's hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When it comes to this topic in general, like sex, desire, intimacy, what's something that you wish people were more open and honest about? so many things right (laughs) um I think I think maybe everyone would benefit from acknowledging that maybe they don't always do everything with like pure intentions um like I think it's okay you know like I don't think you have to only have sex with people that you love and I don't think you even need to like only write about people that you love um but I think maybe there like is a little bit of like a like a moral hierarchy that we apply that like kind of bleeds into how we talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't, I don't know what I thought you were going to say. I mean, obviously I didn't have any like preconceived whatever expectations, <laughs> but that I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that's like the only thing, but I think, I don't know. I think we can be open about like our motives and like 
I think it's okay to be like, yeah, I, I did this because it felt good and I wasn't really thinking about it. Like, I think that's like a completely okay and normal thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe like as women, like we're not really allowed to say that or conversely, like that's the only thing we can say, you know, like there's sort of like that, that like type of like cool girl lit where it's like, oh, like I did this in it. And then I like had a cigarette and then I like only wear black and like, you know, it's like you can, you can have feelings too. Like it's like, it's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't make us weak either. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something else that I think that you write and talk about really well is this experience of, and I mean, it's in this piece and in other things too, this idea of just like, I don't even know if neediness is the right word, but like, especially when it comes to sex, like neediness and like wanting, I don't know, or like potentially feeling like, oh, too much or insatiable. Or there's like something that came out of your writing that really resonated with me. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally how I feel and have felt. And Mm -hmm. it's, I I don't even know that I have specifically a question, but that's something that I wish that people were more honest about was it were, especially women experiences like that, where you feel like I, my desire is so high and I want so much and I feel like I'm not supposed to, or I've been like socialized to think that that's not an okay thing. And that there is like a real kind of push and pull and discomfort around that. Yeah, totally. Totally. I think like owning up to like our desire is like a really important thing. Cause like it, you feel terrible if you're like made to feel like you want too much. Like no one wants to feel that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think there's something empowering even in that, the process of like letting yourself want what you want. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And like, yeah, being really honest with yourself about like what it is that you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then obviously the challenge of when that feels like it's not well received, right? Cause like, it's one thing to yeah. say like, sure, just want what you want and own your desires. But obviously the like social messaging around, nope, don't want too much. Don't be too greedy in whatever context that is like, that doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, that's like why it's so hard. Um, so going back to sort of like, writing about sex um who do you Mm -hmm. think does that really well um my standard example is always um James Salter I actually for someone who writes about sex I don't actually read that much like sexy like writing um which is maybe my my fault but I think a sport and a pastime is like one of the most beautiful books ever written and the sex in it is just like extraordinarily described. And then I guess like a, a cousin or maybe a descendant of that book is The Virgins by Pamela Ahrens. And that is also like really, really, really beautifully done. And then I don't know, like I like I did I did read like Anais Nen and I read like Bataille and I read like Story of O like when I was younger, but in terms of like contemporary writers doing sex. I feel like those are my top two would be would be a sport in a pastime and the virgins okay um, yeah I feel like I feel like I get asked this question and I like I don't always know how to answer it because I'm like well I don't know like <laughs> like it's I I don't like I also don't read like much romance and I know like there's a lot of like stuff in there yeah, um, but I mean, those are two books that I haven't read, so I'm excited to read them. <laughs> yeah, I'm just adding more to your to no, your it's, to read list. it's it's good, it's fantastic. Um, with your own writing or things that you're thinking about right now, is there a particular story that you want to tell but haven't yet? I think something that I've always been interested in. Well, okay, 
I have two ways of answering this. The short answer is one, yes, I do want to write about my family at some point. Um, I want to write about my grandparents. And I'm sort of like waiting for the moment where that will be possible. And then the long answer is that I'm interested in figuring out how to write about like a happy relationship or maybe not happy is not the word, but like writing, like, I guess there's like a certain kind of relationship that I've, that I've like kind of been in and like would, would like to write about and like don't really know how to do it. Cause I feel like so much of like, at least like in a, in a short story, like you, there needs to be like some sort of core conflict or like some, some central problem. And that usually is like anathema to like writing about like a relationship that's working. So I am interested in like maybe figuring out how to do that or like how, how I would like represent something like that. I suspect it would have to be like a novel and it, there would, cause there would have to be like some other, some other problem. Right. That like the conflict yeah. would have to come from somewhere other than the relationship itself. Right. Yeah. And like, how would I be able to write that without making it corny? Right. The other thing? No, yeah. I mean, that's a good question because yeah, so many depictions of relationships, like it is the conflict, right? It is something destructive. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Like I, like, I do think it's like useful and like, I'm, I'm working on a short story about that, like right now, but I guess I, I, I'm interested in seeing if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice or thoughts for aspiring writers or people who want to take writing more seriously, anything like that? I think it, it, it's, it's, I would say read more than you write and write a lot. It's kind of the, the advice that I would give. I don't think we need to like rush to publish. I also think if you're afraid of publishing, you should, you should not be (laughs) like, I think, I think it's good to have like a little bit of a thick skin. And I think like you can't be too precious about like what you put out into the world. Like it's like people won't like it. That's fine. They're not your people. But I think, yeah, just writing a lot and, and reading, reading more than you write is really important. Do you think there's anything that's helped you to be less precious and to have a thicker skin? Because I think that's one of those things that's really easy to say and hear and agree with and much harder in practice to actually live. Yeah. I mean, I think it's only just been a matter of time. Like, it's really just, it's just been like, yeah, like spending enough time out in the world. Yeah, that like I can I can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I've also been like I've also been writing online for a long time, so I'm kind of used to it. Like I'm used to like people like emailing me or like you know like not liking what I write. I will say though, it was it was hard when um, I had my book was reviewed in Book Forum, and the review was like overall positive, but. Uh, like the the review wasn't bad necessarily, but it was harsh. Like there were statements where I was like, oh, like she's like going in for the kill. And that was hard to read. It was also like printed in like a national publication and like, mm-hmm. like on paper. So like I felt very vulnerable in that moment. But then I was also like, okay, well, that's fine. That's like one person's opinion. Do you, so, okay. So, but in that situation, like, so take me to that moment, right? So like you read that you have whatever feelings you have, how do you process criticism? Like, are you, what am I even trying to say? Um, because I think sometimes, like you said, people just aren't going to like it and it's like a brushing it off type thing versus picking out of it what is valid and helpful to you. Like, how do you think about that? I guess it's like, 
like you have like the initial like wow like oh my god I can't believe someone would say something like that and like part of why it stung was because it was true like she didn't say anything that was untrue um like she was like oh yeah like this is like a college novel like I guess if you like are like a certain kind of like privileged kid like you're really gonna like like this is like a paraphrase like it wasn't actually that mean but like what she was getting at was like more or less like essentially true and I feel like it always stings to be observed in a way that you weren't expecting but then like after a little bit of time goes by I like was able to sit down with it and be like okay well you know, like, this is, this is true. And like, she's not actually saying anything bad about the book. She's just like, making comments about like, the, the way, like the context in which it's like presented and like, what that means. And in general, like, I don't know, I'm not great with feedback. That's why I'll never do an MFA. I just feel like I would, I would wilt in a workshop. Like I, 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 I can actually, I mean, like, I can be a really tough critic. And, um, and I apply that same gates to my work. So I guess like the workshop comment is more like, I don't, I don't like it when people look at things that aren't, aren't done when Mm -hmm. they're done, people can do whatever they want with them. Um, but I think, mm, yeah, I think like you have to, you have to sort of accept everything or like take it all in and then later sort of like comb through it and see, you know, what actually, what actually is relevant to you and like your, your situation. Cause you know, sometimes like sometimes someone will be like, Oh, well, I wanted it to have a happy ending. And I'm like, well, too bad. Like, right. Being able to parse out the difference between just somebody's preference and something that is like a more useful critique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do think that like good critique will, will sting a little. I think it's good. Like, I think it's good to be like observed Yeah, and, and read. <laughs> So before we start to wrap up, is there anything that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you wanted to share or talk about? Hmm. I think, I think, yeah, I think we, we covered a lot of ground actually. Okay. Awesome. Um, then, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great place to start to wrap up the way that we end these are, um, with some rapid fire ish questions. So essentially each season, the members of the Patreon community, the people who support and fund the show, um, help me come up with seven questions that each of the eight guests of the season are going to answer. So if you're down to answer some really random questions, do I get to answer all seven? Yeah, you get to, everyone answers the same seven questions like this season. Oh my God, this is, I I love this concept. Okay, (laughs) Okay, awesome. Um, So the first question is about money. And when it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that you feel like is a totally worthwhile splurge? Um, Okay, I I think I mentioned this earlier, but I I really don't shop. Like I don't, I'm not like a like I, I, I buy clothes when I like need them, but I'm not like, and I try to buy nice stuff so that it'll like last and I can wear it a lot. But yeah, I, I really don't, I really don't shop that much, which is good, I think. And then something that I splurge on would probably be, I love eating. I love eating out. I love eating at restaurants. I can't really justify it in any way, but I think it's really important to, to eat lots of different kinds of things. I mean, the heart and, like, wants what it wants, nice right? Food. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, it's nice to eat nice food and have like a nice meal every so often. What's one thing that you really love about yourself? Um, that's a hard question. Um, 
I'm going to say it's uh, my openness and vulnerability. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, What's a recent shift or decision that you've made that's had a big impact in your life? Um, Definitely quitting my job. Yeah, and that was pretty recent too. Yeah, yeah, I was at the end of January, so I'm still I'm still processing it. <laughs> yeah, it's well, which I I love too. I love that you were willing to be open about it because I think it's really easy to to do, well, not maybe really easy, but much easier to talk about something once it's kind of like all wrapped up and we've moved past it, right? But talking to someone who's like currently going through something, I think that that's always really interesting. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, looking back, what's one decision in your life that felt incredibly hard to make? Hmm. I think paradoxically, it was also the same decision, which was um, to sort of put aside this career that I that I really did care about um, working, working at a nonprofit, Um, like something that was like, could could have been a path for me. And and just to like, and I really, I really cared about where I worked. I really cared about the people that I worked with. I knew that it was like, a really hard thing that I was doing. And I basically like, I had wanted to quit for a long time and it took like a a number of like tipping point sort of experiences to, to really get me to do it. And it was still like, like it was, simultaneously like a really easy thing to do and also a really, really hard thing to do. Yeah. It's one of those things that I, if he seems to fall into the category of what I say is simple, but not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? Like anything? Yeah, it could be career related. It could be anything, something that you're like, this would be on my like big dream bucket list, something you would love to experience or have happen or anything. Um, I guess like, I was going to, I was going to say, well, like obviously like socialism everywhere and like everyone has universal healthcare and like we can all like pursue our passions without worrying about money. But barring that, I would just like to travel more. Anywhere in particular, like top of your list? Um, I really want to go back to Japan. Um, I went when I was like really little, so I didn't really experience it. I want to go back to Vietnam, um, where my family's from and do research there for a book. I want to, I mean, I want to like, I want to live like a pretty unmoored life for a couple of years. I don't really know how it's going to happen. I have a uh, lot of stuff. I also want that. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it sounds great to like not have an address and like live out of like a suitcase. It does sound awesome. I agree with you. I mean, maybe not to everyone, but to me for sure. Um, yeah. So the next question is about books. I know that you've mentioned a bunch already, which I'll make sure to put in the show notes, but which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you personally or that you recommend or reread most often? I would say A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barr. But, I don't know. He's French. Um, I don't speak French. Um, but A Lover's Discourse has been like really inspiring to me in terms of its format and its subject matter, which it's, it's basically like a phenomenology of love. It's like a dictionary all about like love. And I think it, it has captured things that I've felt really accurately and acutely. And it made me seek to replicate that in my own work. And it's also just like, it's really just, it's, it's great to reread. I would say the wisdom of anxiety no, The Wisdom of Insecurity, uh, Notes for an Age of Anxiety. It's by Alan Watts. It's a little, like, it's a little, like, I guess, like, 70s, like, woo-woo. But it's, like, been, it's it's pretty, it was really formative for me and, like, for, like, some, like, 
sort of just like mental health, depression, mindfulness, like um, anxiety, you know, like running away from the void type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, an ex-boyfriend of mine uh, loaned it to me and he was like, you should read this. And it was really, really impactful. Um, so that's one that I recommend to to people. Um, what else? I don't know. There's so many books. I mean, you've already mentioned a bunch of good ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I think of more, but I think those are two. I'm looking at a lover's discourse right now, which is why I like brought it up and then um the wisdom of insecurity I usually recommend. I feel like um this question in particular, it's always like whatever com- the first thing that comes up is always the right answer, right? For that. So yeah, those are great suggestions. Yeah. Um so the last question, if you could leave our community to listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Oh wow. Um I love I love this community focused um, thing. I guess it would be my call to action would would be to reach out in some way to the community around you, whether that's like a neighbor or like a friend who like maybe has been like going through a hard time or something, or or like donating like your time or money to like a local organization and just like putting a little bit of good energy out there. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you, find your work, maybe say hi online. Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter at, at L R S P H M. My Instagram's the same. Um, and then I'm also, you can find all of my work at larissafem.com. Perfect. Um, Larissa, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was great. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Katie. Hi, Katie. Hello. You ready to answer some random questions and tell me all about yourself? (laughs) I am, hopefully. (laughs) You're like, maybe. uh, Well, it's not a test, so don't worry. (laughs) Hopefully they won't be too hard. Um, My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? So I don't know if obsessed is the best way to describe it, but what I'm really intrigued by at the moment is implicit bias and learning more about that. Um, I'm in a grad program to become certified to become a principal, and one of our courses we talked about implicit bias and took some implicit, uh, implicit association tests. And she mentioned the book, The Blind Spot, which I then reserved from the library and have read immediately since I received it. Um, and I felt like I learned quite a bit about what this is. And so I'm diving sort of into the whole of implicit bias and what it is, how we can counter it. I even did a lesson in my classroom. I'm a high school teacher And this week I decided I was going to teach them about implicit bias and sort of pass on what I've started to learn. Isn't that awesome when you find something that is really interesting to you and then you go down the rabbit hole and then you get to teach other people and talk about it? It's like my favorite thing. I love it. No, I was totally selfish. I was like, so I teach an AP class. We've already taken the AP test. So we sort of have this like extra time where I don't really have to stay on a 
set schedules. So I'm like, okay, today we're doing a lesson on implicit bias because I want to. So here we go. I'm going to teach you about this because you're about to go out in the real world and I think you should know these things about yourself. So sort of selfishly, I decided to pass on my new knowledge. Selfishly and also generously, it sounds like. Yes, no, I I teach at a private school and that's new for me. I've taught at public school for years. So I sort of can see the privilege and future power a lot of these kids may have. And I feel like even more so they should then be aware of sort of their privilege and their views. So definitely trying to to do a little good in the world as well. I love it. Um, What's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like one specific thing or area of your life that you're currently finding challenging? Well, I'm a teacher and I have about 12 days left of school and I just feel exhausted. I don't know if that's a frustration, but it is this constant cycle where the end of the school year, it just feels so overwhelming with so much to do and the end is near, but um, the level of exhaustion is real. So just sort of trying to get everything I want done in the amount of time I have to, to make it to summer is my current barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into or something that a lot of folks seem to prioritize you just don't really care about? I'd say fashion and clothing in general. Um, I wish almost I had a uniform that I could wear. I I really hate shopping. Even online shopping is not my favorite thing to do. So the thought of like going to a shopping mall and trying on clothes sounds miserable to me. Um, And knowing what's in style and matching things appropriately, it's just not something I feel like I'm very good at. And I don't want to spend time, effort or money doing Yeah, I totally get it. Um, What would you say is your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'd say sort of time and presence. So I'm contemplating in my brain, which is my healthiest relationship. Um, I'd say it's maybe with my husband and my one and a half year old. I'd like to think we're a little family unit. It's one relationship altogether. And I've really tried to be conscious of using the time we have together and being more present um, as being a sort of new working mom and finding the balance. I found I was too distracted a lot of the time playing on my phone or, you know, not really giving my full attention either to my spouse or my son. So I've really tried to be conscious in the last couple of months of just using the time we have together to actually have really good quality time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? I think I'm going to go with sex. I feel like when you're younger, like a teenager and in college, people talk about it a lot when they're sort of out there finding the person for them. But as sort of a, a married adult, I feel like once people find their person, it's almost like friends stop talking about that side of their relationship a little bit. And I'm not really sure why. And so it seems almost like more taboo to talk about what's going on like sexually with your partner than it did to talk about your exploits with like several partners or trying to find people. And I feel like it's more important than ever since it is, you know, the person I'm, I'm going to be with uh, hopefully forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, clearly all I want to do is talk about sex. So I'm here for that (laughs) completely. Yes. Um, I've, I've tried to encourage it a little more amongst my, my adult friends here. So hopefully, hopefully the trend is changing that it's not something that, 
you know, you get married and then you stop talking about it with your friends. Yeah, I hope so too. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing a show each season. And I am very grateful for that. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show. And then second, what you love most about being in our little community. Sure. Well, I've been following you uh, through the internet for a while. I discovered you when you were guest blogging on Stratajoy, which is a friend site. That was a lot. It was like 2009. That was a long time ago. It was. It was. So I, you know, followed Stratajoy and then I jumped over to the blog you had there and have been following along ever since, but definitely been more closely following um, your podcast more recently. Um, but yeah, I think in general, I consume a lot of free content and I'm willing to pay for a lot of that content if just asked and you asked. And I felt like, well, sure, I've been enjoying her writing and then her podcast for a while and I should put my money where my you know, time is spent. Um, I also, similar to your situation, am married to someone in the tech industry who is paid very well. And so in some ways, I feel like I am fortunate in having the ability to to pay for things and I should, you know, use my money uh, to, to show my values and the things I'm consuming. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And like I said, I'm, I'm really grateful for the support. Is there a particular thing since you uh, joined the Patreon community that you enjoy more than anything else? Um, I love your Friday emails. They definitely always seem very raw and honest and um, insightful. I also... I've never quite caught up with the book club in reading it on time, but it's added books to my book list, which I go on to read later and have really enjoyed. So one of these months, I'll actually get the book and read it on time and be able to share it with everyone else. But it, it, <laughs> ma- it makes for a good reading list. At the very least. Hey, you know what? That, that's all that matters. You don't have to read it in the set time. Um, it's neat that you're enjoying them, even if it's on a different timeline. Um, and the last thing I'll ask, um, can you share where you live and then maybe a social media link or a way that people could reach out to you? Sure. So I live in Seattle and probably the the way to best find me would be on Instagram. It's my current favorite social media. Um, so it is my last name, Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N-K-W. Uh, you'll mostly see photos of my adorable one and a half year old son on there at the moment. Although I sometimes try to remember that people do like other things, <laughs> posting additional photos as well. I know. I feel like for me, it's like, if you don't like hiking and cats, you're not going to enjoy anything I do on the internet. Exactly. If you don't think my son's adorable, you should not follow me. (laughs) Noted. Um, And thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be awesome. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 